here, and looks like a packed house at the end of the day, which is uh, we'll liven it up a little bit from the panels. Um, I'm Eric Epstein. I'm a principal at Sante Ventures. We're a healthcare venture capital firm that's based here in Austin, and we invest in early stage innovative healthcare companies. And actually, Sarah is one of our portfolio companies here from Wave Life. Um, we spend a lot of time in mental health, and very excited to discuss. The current state of mental health today, and also the uh, very exciting uh, new technologies that it will hopefully bring the care paradigm into the future. Uh, before beginning, I wanted to thank the UT Innovation Center and also Sante for putting on the program today. This is the third of a series of three panels that we've had, one on vaccines, one on the digital patient, and now on mental health. So uh, our goal here is to bring science-backed content to the public and really provide uh, clinical expertise. And so really fortunate to be surrounded here with Dr. Sarah Adler, Dr. Greg Fonzo, and Dr. Grin Lord, who have very unique uh, perspectives on the mental health space and know much more than I've ever learned uh, about anything uh, about mental health. <laughs> um, we have 60 minutes today. The, the plan is to take about 30 minutes and answer uh, some questions and introduce ourselves. And then we'll open it up for audience questions about halfway through. Um, there's a microphone about midway through the room here. Feel free to walk up and we'll answer some questions. I'll cut it off about five minutes before and, and finish with a, a closing statement and then um, each of you. Um, before we begin, I wanted to share a, a personal story. Uh, like many of you, I've been impacted by the plague of mental illness in my life. Uh, my uncle, Jack, was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder when I was a teenager and after years of uh, the best treatment in the world, uh, he unfortunately uh, took his own life about 15 years ago. And from that moment on, I've spent most of my time uh, getting a degree in psychology, working on suicide prevention, and investing in companies that are uh, both helpful for the mental health of the community and the, the nation, um, but also just to find new technologies and new ways to uh, approach this both healthcare and, and societal and, and social issue. Um, Today, the stats are pretty dire. 40% uh, of young adults uh, have a mental illness. 150 million people live in mental health shortage areas, and about 30,000 psychiatrists are needed in the next five years to be able to meet the demands of today. Um, fortunately, society is changing uh, very rapidly, and our panelists here will be able to speak to that. Uh, consumer behaviors are changing. Gen Z. 70% of Gen Z seek social media as their first line of healthcare treatment. So think about that, all the doctors in the room. Uh, scientific progress is accelerating. Uh, neuroscience breakthroughs, uh, novel therapeutics, uh, and from Greg's lab at UT can speak to that, um, are really showing early promise, although the, unfortunately the pipeline for new drugs is, is pretty bare at the moment. Institutions are paving the way to actually provide mental health care. Uh, employers, it's the number two most uh, widely accepted benefit after 401ks. So mental health is absolutely at the forefront of the world today. And finally, popular opinion is changing. I mean, the University of Texas, of all places, has a Center for Psychedelic Research and Therapy. And so we'll get into that. But that's, uh, that's come a long way from just uh, a decade ago. And so it's an exciting time in mental health. It's both scary, it's nerve-wracking, but I, I'm very uh, excited about the progress and potential of the new technologies here. Um, and so with that, I'd love to introduce our panel. Um, I'll have each of you introduce yourselves, talk about your clinical backgrounds, talk about your projects you're currently working on, and then I'll, I'll tee up an intro question to each of you, which is what technology are you most excited about in mental health over the next 10 years? 
So Sarah, I'd love to start with you. Absolutely. Thanks, everyone, for joining us at the end of a long day. Um, I'm Sarah Adler. I'm a clinical associate professor at Stanford University and the founder and CEO of Wave Life, which is a platform uh, really dedicated towards those Gen Zers who we just talked about. And ultimately, um, we are um, creating a platform using data, using health and wellness coaches, uh, using social media to really kind of meet Gen Z where they are and to give them something that is accessible to them. Um, my background at Stanford has, uh, as a clinical psychologist, um, has been treating um, this age group for my entire career and also some other folks as well. And um, we're incredibly excited to continue bringing evidence-based science-backed care into a field that is just fraught with a whole lot of garbage right now. So thanks so much for hosting. Thanks, Sarah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, hi, my name is Greg Fonzo. I am an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at UT Austin's Dell Medical School. I'm also the co-director for our newly launched uh, Center for Psychedelic Research and Therapy I'm trained as a clinical psychologist. Um, I uh, did my postdoc at Stanford and uh, did my undergrad at UCSD. Uh, our center, um, which is primarily the thing I'll be discussing today, is really focused on trying to bring more scientific rigor to the study of psychedelic-assisted um, therapies. Uh, there's a lot of evidence out there at the moment. Um, a lot of it is um, misinterpreted or overly interpreted. And so our goal is to really try to design and uh, run studies that are really going to paint a clear picture about the potential efficacy of these uh, treatments and compounds for people with mental health conditions. That's great. Hi, I'm Dr. Grin Lord. I'm also a licensed clinical psychologist, and I also got my start in academia at University of Washington as a research scientist, but now I have turned from academia to a startup CEO. My company is called Empathic, and we have a product that's like Grammarly for empathy that auto-detects um, problems in communication, corrects them in real time. It also facilitates um, healthcare delivery and mental health coaching. Um, to help therapists basically learn in real time what they should be doing to improve their sessions and ensuring they stay on track. Um, I'm also the founder of a nonprofit called Therapists in Tech, and our mission is to bring the clinical voice and center it uh, at a time when technology is booming, digital mental health innovations are huge, but uh, sometimes clinicians can be left to the side or their voice is not centered um, because there's misaligned incentives, things like that. So, it's not the case here today, <laughs> but um, uh, we have about 3,000 um, members of digital health uh, leaders as part of that collective where we do knowledge sharing and um, specifically focusing on women and people of color and bringing them also to be centered in these digital mental health spaces. And Great. Well, great. I'll actually start with you. I know you spend a lot of time in AI, and you can't walk across Austin right now without talking about ChatGPT and all sorts of fun things That's like that. That's my trigger word. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I thought we were going to talk yeah, about I that. Know. I, I, won't, I won't tell you my there. book, but that's, uh, that might be coming. But uh, okay. you know, how do you feel about the excitement around ChatGPT and, and generative AI in mental health care? Obviously, yeah. there could be some drawbacks, but how are you feeling about the current state, and what are you excited about? Yeah, so for, for those of you that, that don't know, GPT-3 is a large language model. It was uh, released publicly for early access in probably early 2020, and people have been developing on top of it in digital mental health for the last three years. When ChatGPT came out, that was the first time there was this interactive UI that everyone could kind of access, and people's minds were suddenly blown to see like, oh my gosh, this is the potential of these large language models. Those of us that have been in AI for a while 
had a little bit of a like cringe or like groan around like, okay, well, yes, these are large language models and they're very risky and there's like all these problems with the different things they can say, especially if you think about them in medical use cases. But there's also tremendous um, potential and capabilities and what I've seen happen in the field and what I, I think will continue to happen is uh, training large language models for mental health care and for healthcare use cases. So Microsoft has already invested in doing this in the bio side and I think one of the cool capabilities could be doing this in the mental health side. Um, at Empathic, we're already doing some foundational work around that for psychotherapy and assisting that with AI. Um, but in terms of you know, creating equitable access, something like ChatGPT for mental health could be a great move forward as long as it was accurate, trained, and had um, sufficient bumpers with researchers and labelers putting like, the correct things around it. So again, massive potential, but also massive potential for um, misinformation without having experts involved in that process. I don't know if there's more you want to get into. Well, there's a lot, lot of work to I, I chop just there, right? Just open it up. Well, yeah. be interesting with, with Sarah, given your work at Wave Life, and especially working with Gen Z, who, who interacts with the health system in a, a new way. Um, I guess, how, how do you see both ChatGPT you know, impacting this, but also just ha how do you ensure quality mental health care uh, in that space? Yeah, we're, we're actually gonna wait for Empathic to do the heavy lifting on kind of proving out and doing yeah. all the bumpers, <laughs> but where we actually um, are thinking about using AI um, in the more near term is actually around assessment and measurement. And so there are right now, sort of think about it as like, what can you do right now versus what can you do in the future? And while they're figuring it out, um, we actually are thinking about building um, uh, chatbots that actually can do uh, assessments in the mental health field, especially with Gen Z, they need that dopamine hit to sort of keep them engaged on a regular basis. Keep engagement is sort of the name, name of the game. And so ultimately, we need to find new ways and better, more engaging ways of keeping folks um, engaged with doing really boring things like assessing their symptoms every day, doing check-ins, sort of getting them to facilitate mental health um, on a daily basis rather than thinking about it as just an acute care crisis. That's where we're really gonna get levers around um, prevention and we're really going to be able to move the needle on the access issue. If we can kind of go upstream and prevent people from breaching a crisis, then we have a massive opportunity to be able to, um, to really move that needle. Gotcha, and you, know, you mentioned boring things. I think it's a good transition to uh, psychedelics. <laughs> um, I know there's probably not many interests there, but Greg, I'd love to understand just a little more about the center at UT and, and what's the type of work that you do. And also kind of wh where do you see the future going here? Obviously there's, there's a lot of cultural excitement, but clinically, what, what are some of the risks that you see uh, as you delve into that work? Yeah, um, so very uh, uh, complex question, I guess, but let me, let me dive in and start with, um, at, at you know, our center, we are focused on really uh, five main tenets, I guess you could say. So one is developing and testing out novel treatment approaches that incorporate psychedelics. Um, and that includes both um, the, the compound itself as well as combining it with, for example, other things like neuromodulation or other kinds of approaches that we know are effective for treating psychiatric disorders. Um, second, we want to be able to optimize the delivery of this treatment. So at the moment, you know, the, there's a lot of evidence out there for um, uh, psychedelics, but at, we really have no idea who is the right person to undergo this type of treatment. And I think that's an important question because we know, for example, from uh, emerging data that there are folks that just will not respond well to this treatment approach. And there are folks that probably should not receive the treatment because they will have uh, a negative um, a reaction to that experience. For example, the induction of mania or, um, or depression. So, 
uh, there's, it's a big question there about who is the right patient for this. Uh, third, we want to understand mechanisms. So how are they working? Mm -hmm. And that for me is particularly important because uh, at the moment it's a black box. All we know is that you know if you if you give somebody a psychedelic and you put them in a sort of set and setting that is going to be supportive for them, um, ideally conducive to having a positive experience under the, the effects of the compound, uh, that will hopefully lead to some therapeutic outcome. But how that actually works on the brain, on the peripheral biology, and on the psyche itself is, is really not understood at all. Fourth, we want to serve the, the local community, so Austin and Central Texas, by giving them access to these treatment modalities um, that are the most cutting edge and, and will offer them the potential for receiving healing uh, when they most need it. Um, and then fifth is education, so doing stuff like this, talking about the center um, and, and sort of you know, about what we're doing and how we're approaching this. So at the moment, we have kind of two classes of studies that are ongoing. One is observational studies in which we are following people that are already seeking out treatment um, in a setting and in a place where the legality allows for it. So this is you know, one of these, um, uh, one of many sort of psychedelic retreat centers, for example. We're working with the group um, looking, which essentially is a, uh, they're called Heroic Hearts Project. They're a veteran-focused nonprofit, and they raise money for uh, veterans and veteran family members to go to an off-site retreat in a, a, a different country to undergo these treatments where it is legal and, and the access is more available. Um, and so our approach there is really just to begin to um, look at potential mechanisms underlying the therapeutic effects, looking at things like brain imaging or EEG to be able to understand some of the changes that occur before and after treatment and how those might relate to improvements in people's symptoms of uh, mental health issues. And then the second study is sort of the gold standard classic randomized clinical trial uh, in which we'll be administering psychedelic compounds to uh, individuals at Delmed um, that are, of course, you know, they're rigorously screened, prepared for this. Um, these are FDA-approved trials that we'll be uh, undertaking, and the first of which we'll be starting up um, in probably the next few months. Um, and so, kind of broadly, that's where we're we're at at the moment. Um, and then, in regards to you know, th there's I think th there's this mix of hype. Uh, genuine excitement and, and sort of um, a negative uh, press that sort of surrounds psychedelics. Mm. And I think in and of themselves, there are mysterious compounds, right, in terms of their effects on the brain, how they help people. Um, and, and in that mystery, I think, comes the potential for people to project onto them many different things, whether it be sort of like a savior um, or, or, on the other hand, maybe a demon. Um, the truth lies somewhere in between, I believe, and I think they, they're, they're going to be helpful for some people, but not for everybody, and that's really where we're focused. It's great. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that's, a, that's such an interesting through line for all of our work, which is um, using, sort of, using data and rigorous mm -hmm. uh, measurement on how we actually understand all of these new innovation treatments is so fundamentally important, because ultimately, we do not we're in this massive access to care crisis because we do not actually understand who belongs in what care pathway at what time. And so I think something that underlines all of, underlies, excuse me, all of our work is, um, is that rigor towards um, really understanding that. And that's something we're actually setting out to do in our, in our research at WAVE as well, which is um, ultimately be a data company, which allows us to use our predictive analytics, some of my research back at Stanford, um, to really understand that, those pathways and to be able to see on an individual, customized, personalized basis um, what treatment does this person need right now that allows us to use our resources most efficiently. And how far away are we from that? I, I know today the insurance companies, the payer ecosystem, measurement is 
either non-existent or worse than non-existent. Uh, you've got bad actors doing some things that are, are possibly bad for the mental health of, of the population. So I guess we have this you know, interesting panel. We've got a lot of great data and technologies that are out there yet to really be applied at scale. So maybe, Grant, how do you think about where we are today versus where we could be in the near future? I think um, it's interesting. I mean, I think actually Sarah's company is one of the uh, leaders in terms of measurement-based care and then integrating that with what we would call a stepped care model, so not just using it in research settings or um, you know, in clinical trials, but really going out in effectiveness research and looking at the community and kind of at each step as um, folks have different needs using precision medicine to kind of evaluate, okay, what is their need right now? What level of care do they need? And let me go to the next step. And what Sarah's company does is really cool because it has this um, you know, opening uh, for Gen Z that isn't the traditional funnel. And that's what I think we're going to see a lot more of is um, integrations of measurement-based care and mental health into places that aren't the traditional brick-and-mortar mental health clinic. And how my company does that um, at Empathic, we actually uh, monitor conversations you know, in workplaces and customer service and all these areas, and, and we're looking at these common factors, qualities, um, with uh, empathy and like kind of measuring that on a baseline. But that also has um, products like ours have the ability to measure you know, when people are distressed or when things aren't going well and use that as a funnel for mental health care or for coaching or for other things. Um, there's other companies out there, voice-based technology companies that are using this right now with payers that are taking small samples of your voice, assessing a PHQ-9 for your mental health, and then immediately triaging to care. So what I'm noticing is like this kind of going outside of the traditional bounds of dissemination and into everyday workplaces and kind of mental health and prevention of problems um, being paramount for like the new frontier in digital mental health. It's, it's beyond that. So anyway, I kind of went all over the place there, but I think all of our companies have that um, in mind. Well, I think it's exciting both on the personalization and data measurement mm -hmm. side, but also on the health equity side. You know, I, I think especially with, with COVID, um, Hispanic and, and black Americans are 20 to 40% more likely to have a mental health issue, but are 40 to 80% less likely to seek care. And so one of the exciting things about all of your companies and, and research is that you can actually equitably provide care. So maybe, maybe Grant, do you wanna to speak to that a bit as well, of just how, how can Empathic and how, how do you see the, the future yeah. unfolding there? Well, I think that relates to data as well. Um, my company actually tried to partner with a number of the large um, providers of um, behavioral mental health and digital mental health online um, to see if we could actually start to measure discrepancies in how care was given, how therapists were speaking to different groups. And one of the first things we found was that people weren't taking race and ethnicity data in for all of their users. And mm -hmm. it's really hard to do health equity research when you have uh, no data and when you're a private company, um, you might not be incentivized to do that. So I think that's the first kind of thing that needs to switch is that if we're gonna care about this, we have to monitor it, we have to measure it, and we have to look at is there bias in delivery, are there discrepancies in delivery, and if you're not looking at that, you can't actually adjust it. Um, so having this like exciting a moment where digital mental health is going into commercial spaces also means those commercial spaces have to have some responsibility in terms of health equity and some regulation potentially around that, which is very far from happening. So like we have to, as a collective, you know, kind of take responsibility for that to be measuring that data and to have our values like aligned around these principles. 
Um, I mean, Sarah's doing it, you're doing that right now in your company. We are, we are. Um, one of the biggest levers to get high quality treatment interventions to BIPOC and LGBTQ communities, um, underrepresented communities, rural communities, places that don't have people like us to be able to treat them um, is through your phone. I mean, that's a big, one of the biggest levers. And actually, I would say that um, Grin's company and my company are actually currently in the process of submitting for an SBIR grant um, where we are using um, her product on our coaches to make sure that racial and ethnic minorities um, are getting high quality care based on attunement to whether or not our providers are actually committing breaches of attunement to make sure that we're providing that culturally humble, culturally, culturally competent care. So it's incredibly exciting. And again, it's the ability to, um, it's the ability to actually provide care to people who don't necessarily look like us. Yeah. yeah. It's a major issue as well in regards to psychedelic research. <clears throat> you know, looking at the data, um, I would say probably like 80% of the participants in existing studies have been white and Caucasian. Um, there's very few um, representation of you know um, uh, ethnic minorities or, or diversity in those samples, and and it's a challenge not only for this type of research with psychedelics, but just biomedical research in general. Um, there's been a, a really long history of you know uh, abuse of um, uh, this this privilege, you know, uh, and people taking advantage of it, um, and it's a it's a major barrier to really designing and testing these treatments in the widest segment of the population that we know is really going to be able to hopefully benefit from them. So it's a, it's a problem, you know, we, at least uh, speaking in terms of the center and, and I, I guess biomedical research in general, haven't really solved yet. But I'm hoping maybe some of the bright minds here can um, help contribute to some of the solutions. Yeah. And I think like representation matters a lot too. And again, that's part of our mission with Therapists in Tech is we're trying to get, you know, folks into the space that aren't just white researchers like me and like us. It's like, I, you know, that, that is very important in the digital mental health space is making sure that it, you know, we have all the stakeholders at the table that are evaluating and building these tools. So. And also from a product development perspective, most of the tools out there on the marketplace, most of the apps out there are designed by white folk. And um, that's all well and good, but it is actually very bad user-centered design in terms of creating an equitable and um, solutions that actually can meet the needs of those who are most in need. Mm -hmm. And I think the crossover has been made worse into digital mental health because it was right. already bad in clinical in, spaces, in but now you're going into a space that's it's tech, you know, and um, yeah, not super diverse, even in places that it is diverse, not necessarily aware of the issues with health equity. So there's just a lot of education and a lot of interdisciplinary work of bringing stakeholders in. And I think we're at that moment right now of, of taking folks and like bringing them into these spaces and you know having the conversations that matter. Um, so I'm seeing like, I'd say in the more recent digital mental health, like tools that are coming out, there is more representation, there, there are more conversations about that. But even like pre-COVID, I, I don't think that there was a lot of awareness in the digital mental health space about how do we actually execute this? Who needs to be at the table? That's right, how do we operationalize? Um, I'm thinking of, um, there's sort of a parallel process in academia and the research world at the same time where we are sort of asking people to step up and demonstrate leadership for those folks who are, have that privilege and power. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Well, what, it's actually interesting on the clinical trial side, right, where effective therapies have not been approved for mental health in decades. Mm -hmm. um, the ones that have for SSRIs, uh, how many women were in those clinical trials? Zero. None. Absolutely none. That's right. 
Um, and so I guess, Greg, as, you, as you're um, at the kind of bleeding edge of these new clinical trials with new therapies, how are you ensuring both access, but also uh, the, the um, ability to provide care in a, in a more a cheaper way? Because I know psychedelic therapy can be very expensive to administer. So both on the access side, but also just on an ease of, of implementation side. Yeah, it's a big challenge. Um, so on, on the access side, you know, obviously we, I think we need to try to gear our recruitment efforts towards um, being as balanced as possible. And so really reaching out to the Latino community, to the African American community, for example, which are typically historically underrepresented in these types of studies um, in order to try to increase their, um, their involvement. And some of that too might involve um, uh, community-based participatory research, mm -hmm. which you know kind of tries to involve the community uh, stakeholders in the design of the study itself, uh, the way it's conducted, and, and hopefully that might lead to some positive um, change there. The the other issue that you mentioned um, is in regards to you know scalability, right, mm -hmm. of of psych uh, psychedelic assisted therapies, and at the moment it is um, there. First off, we should say none of them are FDA approved at this time, right? So you cannot receive them legally, at least, um, outside the context of a, uh, an approved research study. Um, that hasn't stopped a lot of people, so there's a lot of, you know, sort of underground uh, treatment work going on, and, and you know, I, I can't really say whether or not that's a good thing, but I think it's risky. Um, I think that uh, in terms of being able to scale it, if, if and when these treatments do become FDA approved, they're going to be reserved for those that can afford them, and they're going to be expensive. Um, it requires at least one therapist for a good four to six hours. Um, it involves the drug itself, a specialized setting. Um, you need uh, probably a backup therapist as well so that the first therapist can take care of biological functions and remain with the, um, somebody can be with the participant while they're undergoing the effects of the drug. So one of the ways in which I think people are thinking about this is, um, for one, trying to design uh, and test psychedelics that are shorter acting. So the mm -hmm. most popular um, or the most well-researched compounds at the moment are psilocybin and MDMA, um, both of which have a pretty long duration of action, you know, at least uh, three to four hours um, that the person is going to be under the, the primary effects of the drug with the tail end of at least probably another two hours. So there are, for example, there was a, a, um, a top-line finding published recently of uh, intravenous dimethyltryptamine, DMT, uh, which is another psychedelic compound, but it's, it's shorter acting. Um, and so people can take this compound uh, undergo the psychedelic experience and be back to baseline with about an hour. Uh, and so that fits more neatly into sort of the standard care model of the way that we structure um, these sessions. So one approach is to design psychedelics that are shorter acting but will have similar therapeutic properties, and that remains to be borne out in research. I think the other approach that people are taking is looking at um, non-psychedelic psychedelics, which are essentially um, have been called psychoplastogens, which are compounds that induce uh, neuroplasticity um, and have some of the effects that psychedelics do, but don't have the subjective trip uh, experience involved with it. Now that opens up a whole host of other questions in regards to whether or not that's actually gonna be as therapeutic as undergoing the subjective experience. Um, but it's an interesting idea that I think we should probably explore. Yeah, no, it's an interesting space, and Sante actually has a portfolio company called Sensorium that's in that uh, you know, psycho-adjacent space. Uh, so it's, it's exciting early data, absolutely. Nice. Um, I think the name what, of this, can I say something? I think yeah. what's really exciting about some of your research is this notion of like kind of the cure and like this idea, like a, what did you call it, psychoplastogen? Like there's this, it's rewriting like the neural structures in the brain with a pill. And, and I think like we're just in this really exciting moment where 
management, chronic care, things like treatment-resistant depression, that there is this path. Um, and I think as a mental health community, we haven't really reckoned with like what that could mean, that there's a chronic mental illness that could be fixed with a pill and like restructure the brain. So like I'm also curious about you know, how some of those things will roll out to the community at large in terms of equity and other areas. Like we should all be able to have access to that and to be thinking already now in advance from an ethics perspective about like what, what does that mean? Because so many of us are used to working with chronic long-term care and stuffed care and managing and utilization and like the whole mind frame is completely different. It's actually very analogous to what we're seeing all over in the press right now in the obesity epidemic mm -hmm. um, with drugs like Ozempic and Wagovi that celebrities right. that we're sort of seeing this after 50 years of obesity research we are finally we have a magic pill or magic shot and whose hands is it actually getting into, people who actually need it, who are diabetic, are not right. actually able to use this drug because the glitterate are, have co-opted it. And it is, it's definitely a risk. So it's something that um, we, can, we sort of have historical evidence to take a look at and can kind of do things from an ethical perspective to help, help prevent. So. That, you know, and this is a whole other can of worms here too, in regards to legalization <laughs> right, mm -hmm. of, of you know certain. We like promised it wouldn't be all psychedelics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. We're like, it's hard. It's hard. That's right. But That's uh, right. you know, it's uh, but the the access on the one hand is it would be a positive, right? More people would have access to it. Um, then there's just sort of you know it becomes an issue of safety, right? And are people properly trained? Are people mm -hmm. properly screened? Yeah. Um, but the you know the issue with cost of new pharmacological treatments is not it, it's it's a general one, right? Like even you know mm -hmm. um, psychiatric yeah. treatments like uh, Spervato, for example, or Ovality, um, which are some of the, the newer ones, are extremely expensive. Um, and so folks that really might need them the most are probably also you know, relegated to off-label generic uh, prescriptions uh, in order to be able to try to manage their symptoms. Yeah, and, and what I'm struck by in the space is our lack of understanding of the human brain. Mm. I think just neuroscience has gone a long way, and every month, every quarter, there's new research and science about neuroplasticity and new ways to understand how the brain works. And so maybe, maybe for you all, what are some of the most exciting advancements in neuroscience that you've seen as it relates to mental health? Well, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I won't, I won't speak directly to that, right? So, um, uh, well, yeah, so I, I, can, I can start. And, and so one of the um, advances that I uh, have been particularly uh, enthusiastic about actually comes out of Stanford um, and uh, uh, this accelerated um, theta burst uh, mm. stimulation treatment okay. for depression. Um, is uh, pretty, it's pretty cutting edge. We're actually going to um, end up using that in one of our trials. Uh, but essentially, it is a really um, intensive form of brain stimulation treatment mm -hmm. where they took a normally a course of brain stimulation treatment for depression would last about six weeks, and they've condensed that into about five days um, and shown really impressive um, uh, therapeutic outcomes with that. Um, so for me, that's a very exciting thing, the idea of that we can sort of take these treatments that are really long and, and drawn out and really condense them into a really high-impact uh, treatment approach. The other area that I'm particularly excited by is the development of new forms of neuromodulation, um, mm -hmm. things like focused ultrasound, for example, which allow us to hit some of those deep brain structures um, that we know are really important for things like mood and anxiety disorders, um, but which we can only sort of incidentally influence through things like TMS, which are all kind of based at the cortex. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, on the one hand, having that treatment approach in the armamentarium 
allows us to, to better shape um, the way the brain, uh, you know, hopefully in a therapeutic way, influence the brain. But also the idea of combining them um, and, and coming up with um, sort of novel combinations of these approaches for me is, is super exciting. Which brings us right back to the importance of collecting data and making sure that we can engage our patients in giving us treatment data. And that allows us to create these stepped care models where we are most efficiently and effectively using our resources. Um, and that is really sort of the, the thing, it's not the most exciting thing in, in neuroscience right now, but in terms of how it actually can impact our, our access to care crisis. Um, being able to really, again, direct people from a personalized medicine, a precision medicine place in a field where, to your point, we're still in a little bit of a black box about what the mediators and moderators are and what actually is effective um, is, is just incredibly exciting right now. That's, that's great. Oh, get rid. Oh, I was just going to say, like, for me, one of the exciting parts is the combination of some of these innovations and in tech with things that are, like, very tried and true. So like human relationships and trust and rapport and like we know a lot about what makes people better. And so it's great that you have these great drugs, but like how are people delivering them? How are they talking about them? How, you know, all of those things um, we're, act, act, oops, we're actually involved in a, um, a study looking at the delivery of uh, psychopharmacological treatments and kind of optimizing the communication and the trust building around the delivery of some of these medications. And we all know about the placebo effect, but uh, these kind of common factors things and like humans and the, um, I guess like AI augmentation or pharma augmentation of that, it just only powers what we already have, which is these great human relationships. And then, you know, inserts the, the cure, inserts, you know, additional um, facilitating things to make the reach bigger. Uh, but but that's one of like I think our roles in technology at my company is to make sure that like these elements in human communication are also monitored, optimized, and trained. So it's not just like it's all in the pill because we know that that's not true. In fact, I mean we can list statistics about how that's not true. Therapy has to be delivered with a lot of these medications, and that also needs to be studied and can be trained. People can learn to listen with empathy and trust. We have tons of research about it, but it's often kind of put to the side, I think, sometimes when AI comes out or pharma comes out, we forget like, oh, we can actually also learn about human communication and how to measure it and improve it. And there are rules around that and there's standards around that. Um, and that's what we're trying to do at Empathic is to make that easy to train and evaluate at scale when folks are delivering these kinds of treatments. And one of the ways that um, we can consider, again, using Empathic is that right now there are only 550,000 licensed therapists in the United States. And when you think of that massive supply and demand imbalance, again, it's how do we actually use those folks more efficiently and also train um, non-licensed helpers to be empathic, which is the number one rapport building thing and the thing from a common factors perspective, actually the interaction yes. between human beings, the ability to look into someone's eyes, to have their body down regulate because you're there with them is actually known to be the most effective thing right. in treatment. And so yes, all these technological advances to Grin's point are amazing and exciting. And to Greg's point as well, it's one weapon that we have in the arsenal, um, but really understanding how to bring all of these things together is really it's going to bend the needle. Yeah, I mean, it's like powering humans. Like, it's just one other tool to enable right. already, like, human connection rather than replace it or, right. you know, substitute it. And collecting data to understand how and why. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs>
if I haven't said that before. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, well, I would love to open up this session to the audience. There's a microphone about halfway through the room, so if anyone would like to line up and ask questions, uh, feel free to go ahead. I'll ask one uh, starter question as, as the folks line up. Um, the panel title is A New Generation. Um, young people, Gen Z or millennials or however you want to define it, um, think about mental health care differently. And how do you all as clinicians and entrepreneurs ensure that they're engaging with the mental health care system in a validated and appropriate way? Yeah, I think I, I'll, <laughs> I'll start off by, by saying that, um, and I, actually there's a huge difference between Gen Z and Millennials, so we cannot conflate those two groups <laughs> at all. Yeah. Gen Z is consuming. Didn't you didn't know, <laughs> that? know that? Yeah, it's a known, it's a known thing. We're Millennials. <laughs> just, so, just in case you right, didn't know. That's <laughs> Gen Z is consuming, they are the first generation um, in history that is demanding of mental health um, as a human right. Yeah. And they are also the first generation who is demanding it as a consumer good. And so this is, there is this massive opportunity, a massive shift. And Gen Z is also the, the double-click generation. They don't buy without double-clicking into who's the owner of the company? What do they stand for? Mm -hmm. What do the Yelp reviews look like? What does the Apple store look like? So there is this massive sort of shift in consumerization of mental health. And so there are a ton of companies out there that are sort of trying to do what we do. And I will say, I will sort of say, we believe our main differentiation is that we are based on evidence-based. We are based on a scientific delivery. We are making sure that we are collecting data to reinforce with RCTs, with the best scientific methodology that we can so that we're demonstrating outcomes. And back to your actual earlier point about employers and payers, um, fundamentally one of the reasons that mental health care benefits, 80% um, of mental health care benefits in the employer space switch over um, every two years is because no one is actually collecting those data to actually demonstrate the ROI. Mm -hmm. So this is something that um, we believe we can serve the consumer, we can serve the science, and then we can also ser serve the, the payer. Great. Go ahead. questions. So actually, this uh, parallels off of that, talking about work, workplaces and uh, the products that are, that are purchased for the workplace. You mentioned, and you used the word garbage earlier, Dr. <laughs> Adler. Did I? Did I say yeah, that? Yeah, you, said, you, you yeah. said all the other. But I appreciate that, because yeah. I think that there are a lot of products out there which are probably not as helpful as others. Let's just say that, right? As employers or leaders who are trying to understand which to purchase, what are the simple to understand markers that you might look for to understand the difference between the efficacious and the garbage? Yeah, I would, I would actually say um, look at the clinical intervention itself. Is there an evidence base? Is there a research base? Um, to support the efficacy, because ultimately one of the most amazing things about technology and the most horrific things about technology is that, you know, Reid Hoffman is very, who founded LinkedIn, is very famous for saying, um, technology is so great, the startup is so great, you build the plane while you're flying it. I totally messed that up, but you understand my, what I'm trying to say. And in healthcare, that's really dangerous. Um, so ultimately what I believe is, is this a look at the company and say, have they rushed to market as fast as they can because of financial incentives, or are they slowly, slowly, methodically building a research base to demonstrate efficacy? 
And then the second piece is, um, are they collecting data on your employees? And this gets a little bit tricky, but there are ways to do it in an anonymized global way so that you can actually feed back and say, hey, look, here are the markers, here are the, here are the actual outcomes that are showing reduction in symptomology. Um, and then thirdly, I would also say like engagement has to be a factor. So is this actually a user-centered designed product that is meeting your user where they are and um, acknowledging them? Many of the um, products out there in the market right now are just unfortunately, um, they're really one-size-fits-all. So how are they actually showing up and, um, and uh, doing discovery, doing needs assessment, working with your company to actually provide a product that meets their needs? Hello. So first of all, thank you guys so much for spending your career and your time helping and improving the mental health of people who have, it, have a hard time. My question goes a bit about the title of this entire uh, panel, uh, the future care, mental health and the future care. You've talked a lot about the care of actually mentally ill, but as I see it, the trend is still going up. We have more and more people developing mental illnesses. Is there room for innovation and for techn technological products to help with preventive care when it comes to mental health? And if so, what do you see as the biggest potential right now? Mm. Um, I can take just from my perspective. So the company that, that I have, um, you know, I'm trying to help people with this Grammarly for Empathy thing in their actual conversation so that they can stop problems, uh, the kind of problems that you would actually end up taking into the therapy room. Um, granted, this is like not the appropriate treatment for severe mental illness, but it definitely takes like a preventative angle around how can I help this person learn to listen with empathy in real time immediately while they're talking, rather than the conversation goes off the rails, then you bring it to your therapist, which you can't get into anyway, you know. Um, so I think these kind of like smaller uh, ways of training other people to listen and hold each other for, for me is an important part of prevention that goes you know, outside of the um, traditional understanding of preventative care. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about more of the other parts. Yeah, yeah, I would say that our name sort of says it all. Like our name is, our name of our company is WAVE. And, and the reason for that is that we fundamentally believe that most people get access to care when they're in acute crisis, when something is wrong. And ultimately, we fundamentally believe in sort of in those micro nudges and spaces. We want to integrate mental health into I jokingly say more like dental health. Like you are brushing your teeth hopefully twice a day, flossing hopefully once a day, twice a day. Um, and you're doing that and only when you need a dentist or a periodontist or an orthodontist do you sort of step up in care. And so ultimately by bringing, and Gen Z is the powerhouse that's gonna do this. They're the ones who are gonna take mm -hmm. this conversation because they're demanding it into the forefront and say, um, no, mental health is something that is part of our well-being, like lipstick. Um, like what, like a consumer good. And so there's a real opportunity to shift, again, upstream to the prevention place. <clears throat> yeah, the only thing I would add to that is just that, you know, I, I think it's a great question, and, and the challenge is that the whole Western medical model, you know, really relies on, you know, treating an illness, right? It's not about promoting health. Um, and it's a big question. Um, I think there are ways to begin to move towards that, but I think it's going to require um, a real mindset shift in terms of the way we think about healthcare and, and medicine. Mm. Yeah. And I think the consumer marketplace is going to be driving that ultimately. Thank you. Thanks for the question. <clears throat> Hello, how are we? Hello. Good. Um, my name is Daniel Paul. I'm the leader of the Metatherapy community. We have created a place where people co-create 
mental health technologies with extended reality. Uh, we're committed to bringing down the costs for therapists to get into virtual reality. And I wanted to hear your opinions about the future for XR and mental health and what excites you about it. If I, if I heard the question correctly, the future of uh, augmented reality or virtual reality? Uh, extended reality. Extended. So virtual, yeah. reality. <clears throat> okay. virtual and augmented reality. Yeah, so that's uh, it's an, so I'm, I'm, I think, confessing my ignorance here in terms of not really quite understanding what XR is, but that, that's, yeah. <laughs> um, but so my, so with virtual reality or augmented reality, I think um, we know, for example, that it does have a role in things like exposure therapy. Um, which are you know sort of therapeutic ways of treating things like anxiety disorders or post-traumatic stress disorder, and essentially it allows for the creation of you know the immersive environment that um, would serve as a trigger for the person's anxiety or or fear that then can um, be utilized as kind of a corrective tool. So currently, that's the main way that I know that they're being utilized. But I think in the future, particularly if we think about you know I kind of go back to psychedelics, that's, that's sort of my area of expertise that uh, there's a lot of interest in combining um, psychedelic-assisted therapies with uh, virtual reality or augmented reality. Um, for one, in being able to sort of standardize the setting right, that somebody might be in, um, and being able to design a setting that's going to be really conducive to somebody having the best possible experience with that drug, whatever that might be. right? And I think that's still an open question. Um, but I think there is the opportunity there to use some of those um, high-end tools to be able to um, complement the treatment approach and really um, deliver the, the treatment in a way that's going to be the most helpful for that person. How we do that, though, is an open question. I think access comes up, too, because yeah. not everyone has access to an Oculus headset. Mm -hmm. And so, like, and do they, are they going to hold the phone here? Like, there's all sorts of things that, in just in general, for digital interventions, but particularly when hardware is involved, that makes it a little bit more challenging to imagine, like, is that going to be the future that everyone has? You know, and it, and it could be, but um, these are some of the things that I think people think about when they're doing like trials to try to get this out to larger groups and people. We actually did um, a few different studies uh, that uh, Greg was actually just talking about in, in my lab at Stanford using uh, virtual reality to treat exposure-based again, but for eating disorders as well as anxiety. Um, and what we actually found is although there's tremendous promise in terms of, again, standardizing environment and all of those things, the same exposure um, and the same sort of habituation process um, can be done with other forms of quote-unquote immersion that are not, to Grin's point, as dependent on very, very expensive sort of access barriers uh, technology. So for example, at WAVE, we are actually building out what we're, we consider immersive experience. The question goes to what is immersion? Um, if you ask yourself what is the most immersive thing out there right now, um, folks might argue it's TikTok and YouTube. Um, that is really immersive. And so the question is, how can you actually leverage the construct of immersion, which is really about engagement, to keeping people engaged? Um, and moving towards that, we're actually creating um, little mini um, immersive experiences within our app that actually mimic the neurochemistry of an exposure environment just with holding your phone and actually just navigating yeah, it more like a video game. So um, until I think the, um, the, the cost of these sort of um, technologies come down dramatically, which I think there's definite potential there, but um, we're trying to get um, high quality care into as many hands as possible. So, yeah, cool. thank you. Thanks. Hello. <clears throat> Mic check, sorry. 
Um, hello. So thanks for the uh, the session was really inspiring and really really interesting. And uh, I just want to echo like gratitude for what you're doing as well. Also, just want to acknowledge Eric, your story of loss. Um, I feel it too. I started my business because I lost my best friend to suicide, um, and I built a, a business that's about soft micro, micro training soft skills in the workplace. Okay. And my question, really, for the panel. Um, is that when we talk about mental health, a lot of the interventions that we talk about are therapy and treatment. When we talk about prevention, often we just talk about early detection, not actual prevention. So I guess I've got a cultural question for you all, which is, you go back 40, 50 years in the physical health spectrum, which is neutral just like mental health, we didn't have fitness we didn't have education, but we developed physical education to teach people to give autonomy, small exercises that they could do, and then we turned great outcomes. Fitness is great in physical health. So I guess my question is, why is fitness missing in mental health, and how long will it take before we mainstream mental fitness like we've done for physical fitness? Yeah, I would say I think, um, well said. I would say I think um, to, to Grin's point, that is really what we're talking about, is what are the small things that you can do every day to actually maintain your emotional well-being. Now, we all know it is going to go up and down, um, but really the key is what are those small things that we can do each day to improve our well-being. There are actually a ton of companies out there right now that are marketing as um, Selena Gomez actually just has Wonder Mind, her new company, and she talks about um, being the gym for your, for your mental health. There's another company that talks about being fitness. So this is definitely a narrative, I think, to your point, that is becoming more and more into, into the ethos um, in, in a very well-needed way. And that's like my dental health analogy, too. It's like these are things we need to do and be doing on a daily basis um, in order to prevent mental illness, which is different than mental health. We all have mental health. Um, and we not, don't necessarily all have mental illness, but how do we sort of really move that paradigm down earlier so that we're investing the same way that we invest in eating less salt, eating less fat and sugar, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's a great point, really great point. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's interesting. It's a great question, um, and I was just thinking about, I wonder what it was that really allowed for physical fitness to enter into the, the educational stream there. Um, and I don't know the answer, but I, I would imagine there would have to be some sort of motivating or incentivizing factor for educators um, and the educational system to really want to adopt yeah. uh, those approaches. Um, and part of the issue, I think, is that they're underfunded, you know, and that there's just yeah. not enough um, teachers to go around, right? The teachers are underpaid. There's, you know, per capita, too many um, students per teacher. And it's not the case in every system, but in general. Um, but maybe if we can identify what would be the, the most incentivizing factor, that would might be helpful in really getting people to adopt. I can answer the question for you, and it's sort of a well-documented, if you look at Kellogg, um, which is the producer of cornflakes, or was at some point, this, it was consumerism. And it was actually the ability to market it and to sell a product that actually drove the entire industry. So um, I think it's money. <laughs> and actually, and that's why I go back to Gen Z as being this powerhouse that is viewing this as a consumer product that they want, deserve, and must have, which is actually drive, which will, I think, drive exactly this revolution that you're talking about. I think, though, like the caveat from a cultural perspective is that like money is definitely the driver in the U.S. Like, mm. um, but like in England and other places. 
because there is more like control around like you know yeah, the NHS like uses AISO for delivery of like care and augmenting AI and they get it into everyone's hands and it's required and elderly people have it as well as Gen Z so like there's different regulatory and government policy things that just simply aren't here in the US in the same way. Um, and I think that does create like um, pressure for innovators like us to move into tech spaces and to m move towards consumerism to make impact when we've seen repeated failures of our systems to not do that. And like, it's just not working. So like, this is a new approach, like, and yeah, but it's, it's definitely dependent on where you're, you're at. And, and I'd be remiss if we didn't mention uh, on the physical health point, um, physical health didn't have the issue of stigma um, mm -hmm. when this kind of came about. And, and one of our early iterations of this panel was talking about stigma and how n newer generations and stigma has been reduced significantly in the world, um, in the culture. And, and the question goes to how do we reduce stigma at scale? And I know we're, there's some literature around that, so I'm, I'm afraid of wading in those waters too much. But I think compared to physical health, which is much more uh, broadly defined as a you know, piece of life, I think mental health has been bucketed into this healthcare realm in a much, uh, in, in a really pejorative way. And so I, I, I'm hopeful that the trends we're seeing of reduction of stigma will continue. But I think unlike Kellogg's where you can just market it, there's, there's certainly cultural and institutional barriers to access to mental health historically. 100%, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, uh, I'm Owen Scott Muir, uh, Scott Muir MD on Twitter. Uh, for those who want to follow me, and I was, it's really hard to do these questions where you're like pretending you're going to ask a sincere question, then you really want to promote your thing. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not actually going to do that. One call to action, regulation.gov. Uh, everybody in this room, tell everyone you know and go and make a comment, any comment on the DEA's open comment period for the next 19 days about the controlled substance prescribing, because if that doesn't get fixed, or at least the can gets kicked down the road, people on buprenorphine are going to die. So go do that now, regulation.gov. Two, um, I am both a psychiatrist and I've treated more people with accelerated intermittent theta burst stimulation for OCD and questionably for depression than anyone else on earth. And I'm good friends with the people at Stanford who did it too. It works unbelievably well. And so my actual question is set up by the, this. Um, remission, like not having symptoms anymore, is a lot different than evidence for 50% less suffering. And we've accepted less suffering as evidence that we will accept forever, and it's not good enough. So how, from a branding perspective, like so 80% of people who get accelerated TMS with SANE protocol in five days don't have depression anymore. At the end of it, it's over, done. 31% of people with OCD. It's true, it's real, I've treated 65,000 treatments worth of people. It is unbelievable, and that includes me. That's how I learned about it. And it saved my life and let me go through Child Psychiatry Fellowship and do this work and publish this research. How do we get a brand around that that's as hot as psychedelics? Because it's not. This is the second panel and the other one my wife is on. So <laughs> like, what is the brand that can take neuromodulation and make anyone care as much as we care about Porsche or White Claw or Slack or mm -hmm. C4 Smart Energy? Question mark. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, go for it. I don't know if I have a good answer to that uh, question. You know, I, I wish I knew what the answer was. Um, but you're right. I mean, I think that um, you know, a, a sort of reduction in symptoms or not meeting a diagnostic criteria anymore is not good enough. Um, 
in terms of a bar. And, and really, we need to be pushing for, um, you know, it, it goes beyond just symptoms, right, but quality of life, right? And, and how, how much are you able to enjoy your life? How much are you able to function um, and, and meet your highest potential? And, you know, it's exciting to hear that you've had such great results with the um, accelerated neuromodulation treatments. I think they're, you know, that's going to be another um, big wave in the future, I think, uh, no pun intended. Right, bring um, on that pun. Yeah. <laughs> to, uh, you know, in terms of treatment and delivery. Um, and, I, you know, part of it, I think, is that uh, as researchers um, that, you know, we, we get excited about a statistically significant effect, right, you know. Uh, but regardless of whether or not the effect is significant, if it's, if it's a, you know, 10-point reduction in a symptom measure that gets you from severe to kind of moderately severe, right, like that's not really good enough. But from the, the way in which now we need to move the needle, I think, is that when we start to get to the point where we have treatments that will put people into remission or, quote, unquote, cure you know, mental illness, mm -hmm. um, then I think we'll be able to kind of really focus in on that as, as the, the next bar, right? That's mm -hmm. the bar we need to meet. But at the moment, a lot of, you know, we're just not quite there yet. Starting to reach it, but not quite there yet. Also, with regulation and the FDA, I mean, the psychedelics are, are coming out, the ones that have the notion of the cure. Like, this is going to happen. So I don't think we know quite yet, like, does the brand need to be big enough? Because it, there hasn't been the, it's not legal, right? Like, what are people supposed to do? So, uh, like, there, there is going to be, I think, an evolution around the brand, like we've seen with other legalizations. So, anyway. <laughs> I also just want to call out the perverse financial incentives in the healthcare system in general is that the consumer, the user, the patient, and the financial incentives of the people who are paying for these services are not aligned. They're actually counter-aligned, right. and that is insanely problematic. So until we actually create um, a, a political initiative system and financial incentives that are aligned, it's, it's going to be a while. And this is a, will be the last audience question, so apologies for folks. I'm sorry. Okay. sorry. Um, how to talk about after the gentleman before. I'm going to take you back down here. And, and to the other uh, question just before him um, in the health and fitness space, I'm Jean-Philippe, uh, and I am the founder of Symbionic Labs, a pre-seed startup from New Zealand. And we're worried about health and fitness as well. So back to that point he made, um, I want to talk about the data. Um, do you guys feel that there is enough data out there in terms of having a visibility on what patients have, uh, you know, had in terms of health and fitness regime and in a consolidated way? And I was in an interesting um, talking panel in East Denver about design science and, the, and how to really decentralize these, these sources of data. So I, I wanted your opinion about that. Mm. Yeah. Um... <coughs> One of the things that we're doing at Empathic is we're going to be launching an initiative to open source um, detection for uh, suicide risk and other risk, um, harm to self and others, because every digital mental health company has their own little bag of words or little data set or thing that they've done. And I want to call those folks together to pool our data so that we can have a best-in-class AI detection model for suicide risk. And I think we're just at this Point right now around data in general and like who owns it and how to regulate it and the government is putting efforts into this but I also think from our own community we could start to lead the way in terms of open sourcing and aggregating things when it has to do with mental health outside of the samples that are in academia which are quite frankly very small compared to the commercial samples that 
I mean, when I worked at a prior mental health startup, we had to throw away data to run models because we had so many responses. So we're really dealing with a different league here. And again, I think it's the responsibility of the digital mental health community to decide to like open source aggregate and like make these things available. I would also just say that um, generation Gen Z has a dramatically different relationship with being quantified by the mm. data that you are giving on their cell phone. They, they know they're a commodity. They know that they, what they're worth is their data, which is, on one hand, ethical considerations that we all have to take to make sure we don't exploit that. But on the other hand, what we found is that they're an open book. So because they're just acclimated to the idea that everyone is looking at what they're doing all the time, there's a real opportunity to get informed consent and permission to, for Grin's point, open up um, the very small data sets that are within academia to be able to do these massive um, data analyses. Thank you. Fantastic. Well, I thought I'd close the panel with uh, each of you having a, maybe a what are you most excited about in the future of mental health? I know this, is, this panel is about the future of care. And so maybe let's fast forward to 10 years from now. Let's do a little vision casting of you know, wh where do you think we'll be and, and what excites you most about that future state? Well, I guess I'll, so the thing I'm really excited about is, um, and something that we're starting to pursue is, is this idea of combining um, uh, psychedelics with things like neuromodulation. Um, I think it's going to be a particularly powerful combination um, because of the fact that if psychedelics are helping people recover uh, from mental illness through things like um, enhancement of neuroplasticity, then uh, neuromodulation should be the, the natural complement to that to be able to shape that plasticity. Um, so, you know, 10 years from now, who knows, maybe we'll have integrated psychedelic neuromodulation clinics or um, at least some sort of really uh, advanced technological. Um, integration of uh, both, you know, sort of archaic tools we might say in one sense, because you know we have to remember psychedelics have been used by mankind for hundreds, if not thousands, of years, um, and then uh, combining that with our, our most technologically advanced tools um, for me is a really exciting. Um, yeah, I mean, ten years feels like. I'm like in a startup, so it's like two weeks. And, and, it, and when you think of like AI, you know, we didn't even know what ChatGPT was until so I'm like, wow, that's a while. Um, but I think uh, this point that we were coming back to around incentives is really um, important. And unless our larger structures start to prioritize and systems start to prioritize mental health, like I don't know that we'll see meaningful change. If we come up with the cure, who will have access to that cure is very important, you know. Uh, I, I, these things have to change together. So it can't just be researchers like us. It has to be like a group effort with policy, local communities, like everyone working together. And that's what you know. I, my dream would be is to have this fully integrated model where it's not just the problem of the medical space or the research space to solve this and everyone's prioritizing it. We're seeing that happen. It's, there's much more initiatives than there ever have been before. But um, yeah, this like world of the preventative care, having it in schools, people, you know, like that, that would be amazing. <laughs> Mine's a little out there. Um, I fundamentally believe that, and the thing I'm most excited to see is that understanding, again, coming full circle, who belongs in what care pathway at what time, um, and having those data to be able to really understand each individual's um, psychological or mental, mental health journey. Um, ooh, I just used the word journey as a psychologist. I just like yeah, put, that, put that right out there. Um, I apologize. 
ultimately, I think um, using those data to be able to eliminate the existing taxonomy in the DSM-5 and the DSM structure, which is categorical versus being on a continuum is like the thing yeah. that excites me the most about the work we're doing, the work that you all are doing, and that's where we want to go. Well, Sarah, Greg, Grin, thank you very much for coming to Austin and South By, and thank you all for being here.